0: How much, um, how much good feedback I've gotten, and I'm, I'm glad that you are interested. Uh, maybe you're interested because uh, the 12 steps of recovery um, mean something to you. Maybe you're particularly interested in that. Maybe you just think it's a good Bible study. Either way, I just uh, want to encourage you to keep, uh, keep coming back, as we say in CR, and keep coming back for this study. By the way, tomorrow night in Celebrate Recovery, the lesson is on victory, and, uh, since I will be teaching it, I want to invite all of you, and I want you to know that you are all welcome to be there. Uh, people come to CR for a lot of different, uh, reasons, hurts, habits, and hangups, whatever it may be. It might be because somebody is, uh, struggling with, with something that's a, um, an addiction that's been kicking them around for a long time. Some folks, uh, have told me that they're there because they just want to be happy and worry less, and, uh, I even know of people who've said, "I don't know why I'm here, but I hope to find out," <laughs> and that's okay too. All those are okay. Uh, Larry Roper is here; he he'll tell you more about it too. And uh, and and we're both just just whatever you. If you got any questions, just come and see. We 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 eat a meal at five thirty. You don't have to come to that, but it's a pretty good deal because you can get it for four dollars. So anyway, um, at least you'll know the teacher, and I'll be there, and I'll do my best. And uh, it's on victory, but. Tonight, the uh, lesson is based on the uh, the Holy Bible and the twelve steps, and we are at step three. Now, just to give you just the, the briefest little review, the twelve steps originate with a group called the Oxford Group in 1921, and they do not formulate the twelve steps the way that we see them in the in the in the traditional setup. But it's from the Oxford group that you have a fellow named Bill Wilson who comes out of that. And he develops Alcoholics Anonymous with the help of um, uh, his, his first partner and sponsor or co-sponsor in this, a guy named Dr. Bob. And they, uh, they develop these 12 steps. And it's based on principles that they gained from the Oxford group because they were part of it. And it was all rooted in biblical principles. Now, in 1990, the Saddleback Church, uh, in their Celebrate Recovery program, when it kicks off, they, um, they get the biblical principles and weld them firmly to the 12 steps. So just know that even in its earliest form, the 12 steps had biblical principles in and behind it. And again, they, they change out. The, the, script, the verses that we're looking at here are the ones that the Celebrate Recovery program attached to the classic 12 steps. But there's others that could be attached here too. But it gives us a good list to do a Bible study from. And uh, when you get to step three, the, the statement is we made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God. Uh, step one is the uh, recognition that we're powerless over whatever it may be and that um, our lives have become unmanageable. And, um, and then when you get to three... Uh, we made this decision to turn our life over, you come to uh, this verse in Romans. And we've already looked at Romans once. Step one took us to Romans 7. Step three takes us to Romans 12. Now, Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Personally, this is my favorite verse in Romans, probably because this is where Paul... Uh, starts to say, here's what I want you to do, and uh, it makes sense to me, and I confessed to you two weeks ago that Romans drives me crazy just a little bit. I don't know if you're allowed to say that about Scripture, but uh, just because Paul's kind of all over the map, but we need it. It's God's Word, and, um, and uh, that's okay. I didn't write the Bible, so I don't have to be responsible for it. I just have to read it and obey it, and um, here, Romans 12, uh, he gets it. Okay, here, here's Here's what it means. Now, now this uh, reminds us of, of the verse in, in step one. Remember that step one is the recognition that something's wrong. The, thing, you know, the way Paul describes it, I know that nothing good lives in me, that's in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. Um, in Romans... And we've covered, we've kind of looked over, there step one. We've looked over Romans, um, and in 7, he's right there in the, sort of in the midst of laying out the entire problem with the sinful nature and the problem and where the law is insufficient. The law is good, but it can't do everything, but the Spirit of Christ uh, redeems us, and God's grace and mercy now changes things. Here's the big picture of Romans because we broke it down a couple of weeks ago. The first eleven chapters of Romans, and I know this, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that this crowd is not afraid of big words. Uh, that's why you're here on Sunday night, and uh, I will tell you this: if you are afraid of them, they won't hurt you, and you don't have to memorize them. There's not going to be a test. I um, even got some Greek words to throw out, and, and uh, I'm just assuming that you know I used to always say this is the this is the History Channel crowd. So uh, you know you're, you're you're okay with this, and uh, if anybody feels differently and you're, and you're not happy with that, then keep it to yourself. But no, 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 no. no. Um, <laughs> okay, so one through eleven uh, is you can sum it up by saying it's all about God's mercy that Paul is just, he keeps, he, he describes the problem, but he, and he describes, uh, what's good, but it all keeps coming back to God's mercy. And when you look at the end of 11, in fact, uh, Paul breaks out in song right there at the end. Uh, we even have our own songs. I oh, owe the depths and the riches of God's wonderful grace you know and and so he he and it's called a doxology a way of giving glory or giving praise and so he uh he's talked about God's mercy now in 12 12 to the end of the book the end of the letter he picks up on here's what it means in other words if this is all true and good then here's how you live it and the two words we use there are the theology. Theology is just a word that means talking about God stuff. That's all it means. Okay? And, uh, and praxis is just a fancy word for how we do what we do, the practices that we do. So in the first 11, he's establishing some, some spiritual truths, some teaching. In the remainder of the letter, he says, then if that's true, then here's what we need to do. So, because of God's mercy, here's what we need to do. And what I've got here on this list, if you, it may not, you may not be able to read it, but don't worry about that. This was just, I was just itemizing out the things that, that pop up in the different chapters. Uh, he talks about us being living sacrifices. That's kind of the heading over the whole thing. Uh, using the gifts that God gives us for building up the church body. He doesn't give us gifts so we can reach self-fulfillment. It's so we can help others overcoming evil with good. That's an option that we have as followers of Christ that doesn't make sense in the world. The world says that if somebody hits you, you hit back harder. The world says if somebody does you wrong, then you meet it with equal force. Action, reaction. But in Christ, now it's possible to, wait a second, when they do evil to you, you can do good. Really, why is that possible? Well, let me tell you a story about the cross and how God redeems that. I mean, this, this creates a new option now. Uh, that's not conventional wisdom. Not then and not now. But in Christ, it becomes a new opportunity. Uh, we need to respect the authorities. Now, he's not making a case for why the Roman government or any other government is good. He's not making a case. To, you know. He's not going into politics at that point. He's just saying, look, you, know, you ought to be the kind of people that no government on earth has anything to worry about from you. That we can... We won't get into all that. Uh, he says, "Love one another." Uh, you need to wake up and keep. You know, that, that's kind of the call to, call to action. You know, keep keep after it and don't don't uh, don't give up. Uh, in fourteen and fifteen, he starts talking about debatable matters because these are the very real things that people are going to bring with them as followers of Christ. Uh, you know, he, he he describes real situations. He says, oh, okay, you got this fellow over here who." You know, observes the, the Jewish holy days, and you got these Gentile people over here and they don't. So, which is it going to be? And he says, that's not a, that's not a kingdom of God matter. Just leave that aside. Everybody should do what their conscience uh, calls them to, but live at peace. Um, then in um, 15, he talks about his mission. He wants them to be a part of it, he wants them to be a part of what he's doing. And then he ends up with greetings. And those aren't just incidental. He's affirming the love and the fellowship that they have in uh, Christ and there's some instructions in there as well. But that's the big overview. Now we're going to zero in. Romans 12, 1 through 2 is one of my favorite verses but I am more and more convinced that in most of your English translations, I don't like the way the translators have translated it. So You know, but who am I? Well, I'm the guy you have teaching here, so I get to say that. And you may like it, and that's fine, and you may not like it, or you may not have an opinion, and that's fine too. So I kept thinking, how am I going to get this across? Because there's a lot of, and I understand, translation does not follow literally the Greek text or the Hebrew text word for word. You can't do that. It won't come out right. It sounds like Yoda when you do it that way. Uh, it's, it's, It's really... Bad syntax doesn't make any sense. Uh, if you started reading this slide that's on the screen, then you're probably already thinking, wait, that is Yoda. Is that what that Y-L-T means? Is the Yoda literal translation? It's Young's literal translation. And I went with it because I thought, well, that'll give us the best sense of you know what's going on in this text. And some of the principles that we've established for studying Scripture in here is that we're going to look at a variety of different English translations and see what they do with it. Okay, so if you heard it in Greek, and this would be, this is bad English, but maybe good Greek. You get something like this. I call upon you, therefore, brethren, through the compassions of God, to present your bodies a sacrifice, living, sanctified, acceptable to God, your intelligent service. I'll get to that one in a second. I love that. And be not conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind for your proving what is the will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, something's, you know, we got adjectives with no nouns there, and you know, all my grammar teachers right now are screaming in their heads. And so, uh, okay, here, here's, but here's why we're going to break it down. Um, because it's, it's fun, number one. Uh, the, Romans 12, 1. He says, I call upon you, therefore, brethren, through the compassions of God. Let's just take that phrase. Whenever Paul says, I call upon you, or I urge you, or I exhort you, whenever you see that in one of his letters, he's getting at the main point of his letter. And that, that's, a, that's a formula that would have been very well known in the ancient world. So whenever you're reading one of Paul's letters, if you can find that phrase, uh, laser in on it, underline it, because then you get some sense of what he's going for. He has just covered 11 chapters of material so that he can get to this statement. He doesn't want to lead with this. Because if he leads with this, then it's just going to be like, do this, do this, do this. And notice how he phrases this. Uh, You could turn this around. You could translate it this way, and it it would be fair. Uh, Because of the great mercy of God, I want to encourage you to, and then the verbs. That would be possible, because that's his point. His point is that we do this because of how merciful God is, and he spent time describing that mercy. The therefore is a transition. He's going from the, the talk about God to what we ought to be doing He's urging, he's imploring. Now, this word for mercy, uh, which Young's translation translated as uh, the compassions of God, um, which sounds odd in English. Um, In 915, in Romans 915, you have this word for mercy. It's translated mercy in a lot of the English translations. uh, And it gets translated as compassion more often than not. And in Greek, the word is... uh, Uh, Oiktermos, isn't that great? And uh, it doesn't sound like a very merciful word, but but this this word, this this strange word, which doesn't show up very much in the New Testament, but it's a word having to do with it has to do with mercy and pity and compassion. And then in eleven thirty one, which is our you know just right before we get to that statement in twelve one. Paul's talking about God's mercy and God gets to show, he gets to show his mercy to Israel and he gets to show his mercy to us. And 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 you, if you follow what Paul's saying, he's saying God just ends up in this position where God gets the wonderful uh, role of being merciful to everyone. And that's what causes Paul to burst into song and say, isn't that just, God's just amazing with his mercy and grace and he's loving it. The word there is, Eleos, that's the noun form. And then there's a verb form of it, which means to show mercy. What's the difference between the two words? Aren't they just two words that, are, that mean the same thing? Yes, they are. We have words like that in English. You can have words like that in Greek. There you go, Q-E-D. But here's what's interesting about those two words. Uh, in 9.15... Paul quotes Moses and says, I will show mer- or I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy on, and I will, or I will show mercy to whoever I will show mercy to, and I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion on. Now, yeah, originally that was Hebrew, but when the Hebrew Bible gets translated into Greek, they use these two terms. Is there a subtle difference? There might be. Does it matter? Not really. It, it ends up in the same place. But what I think is very significant is when when paul is quoting that in in romans nine fifteen, he's quoting exodus thirty three nineteen, 19 and paul wants you to go back to the story in fact here's a little bible study tip whenever the the writers like paul or peter or any of them when they start quoting old testament stuff they're not just proof texting uh it's the way we often drop into conversation stories that we all know. Like if you and your friends are fans of, uh, you know, something, you know, maybe some movie or something like that. You know, in, I've, I've taught my sons and a lot of my friends how to speak Godfather, okay? And, and when you speak Godfather, you need to know what it means when I say we're going to go to the mattresses, okay? That's a line from Godfather, which means you're getting ready for a fight, okay? The... You pick up these phrases and you're referencing a story that people have in common. This is what Paul's doing. He's going, you know, because God told Moses, I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on who I will have compassion. That should ring a bell. That's that story. That's that story where God said, where Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will, but you can't look at my face. You can't look at my face and live. So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. You see, you need to know that story too, because we have that in that song. I mean, which, you know, he hides my soul in the cleft of the rock. What does that mean? You know, I don't know. What's God doing running around hiding stuff in the rock? You need to know that story. That's a very important story in Exodus 33 and 34, because God reveals himself. Now, we don't have video, so you have to use words. And what God reveals himself as is he reveals himself as the God who is merciful and compassionate, but he doesn't forgive sins, but he is still forgiving and long-suffering. And and when God's walking by and he's declaring that his name is Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, you know, who uh, will visit the sins upon the fourth generation, all of that is God giving us his resume. He's giving us his credentials. He's... He's giving us his name and his title and what people have said about him and what is true about him. So these two words for mercy are the qualities of God. And I think Paul has rung that bell so that we will know that. And then when we get to 12, we realize, okay, so what he's asking us to do is not just the holy apostle Paul saying, you need to do this because I'm Saint Paul, but he's saying, you need to do this because of who God is that's a great way to lead. That's a really great way to lead your encouragement and your instruction to a group of people. So, because of who God is, because of his qualities of mercy, which we get two words to describe it, here's what I call upon you to do. And now he describes that. First, to present your bodies a sacrifice, living, sanctified, acceptable to God. Now, this word to present, that is not a command word, okay? It has the the sense of a command. But what he's saying is, I'm urging you to present your bodies as a sacrifice. He's saying, this is what I'm going to say. Now, he's going to give us two command words that, that, that explain what the command words are imperatives. They're instructions. But what he wants us to do is he wants us to present our bodies. Now, he's using the language of hebrew worship and what they would see even in pagan worship where you're sacrificing animals you've got to bring something in to sacrifice uh, you know, so you got a goat or a bull or whatever it is or some little animal and you bring it in there and you sacrifice it you devote it to what's holy and then you appeal to whatever god you're worshiping you know or in the case of israel they would appeal to god and they would offer the sacrifices It may seem strange, you know. It does seem strange to us. Okay, let's be honest. It does seem strange to us that we're, you know, butchering animals in worship. It doesn't. What's what's this all about? Well, think of it like this: you're living in the ancient world. What are your sources of food? You've got whatever you can grow out of the earth, if the earth is on your side, you know, and it's not dry as a bone or poisoned or something like that. I mean, you know, sometimes your crops fail. Or you've got whatever little creatures you've raised up and you can turn them into steaks and sausage. That's what you eat. And eating is survival. So when you're willing to give up a goat, a lamb, a bull, or whatever it is, you're willing to go without survival and put your trust in God. That's what sacrifices are. It's not just some hokey ritual where you cut up an animal, and, you know, I mean, that sounds like deer hunting, I mean, you know, we'll field dress it, you know, and we'll make deer sausage and deer jerky out of it. This is serious business. Garrison Keeler, you, you know, any of y'all remember Garrison Keeler, the guy that did Prairie Home Companion? He's got this story that he tells, which to me describes sacrifice better than anything, that when he was a child, he and uh, his uh, cousins, were throwing rocks at the pig and uh, the men in their family came up and said don't do that don't tease that animal like that and he thought well that's hypocritical of them telling us not to throw rocks at it when they're going to butcher the thing and then he said on the day when they butchered the hog he watched how grim they were because he could understand that they had to They had to butcher that animal so that they could stay alive for the winter. And so it's a solemn thing that that taking the life of this creature, you get to live. That's not just sport. That's not just uh, a, a barbecue. That's serious business. This is what's involved in the elements of sacrifice. But here Paul says what we present is not the body of some animal, but we present our own bodies. We present ourselves in sacrifice. And you notice that the term sacrifice has the word sacred kind of wrapped up in it. And that, that, that's not an accident. Um, they, they work together like that. And the way he describes this is a sacrifice that is living, holy, and pleasing. Or sanctified. Sanctified's another word for holiness. What we call holy is sanctified. That means that God has made it holy. He's separated it out, but he's also redeemed it in a way. Sanctified is sort of an adjunct to justified. You can justify something, and it doesn't make it good, but it makes it right. When you sanctify something, you make it godly, and only God can sanctify. We don't sanctify our lives. God sanctifies us. Um. And, and it's pleasing or acceptable to God. They're, the word good is wrapped up in that in the original language. The word that I find most interesting, though, is living. Uh, we had this um, missions professor at ACU, and he used to say, the thing about living sacrifices is they tend to wiggle off the altar. <laughs> and, and, and thats you think about that. That's what's tough. I mean, if you're going to present yourself as a living sacrifice, you may find yourself at moments thinking, I don't know that I want to be here. Yeah. And the power of Jesus being crucified on the cross is not that he's helpless. It's that he stays. He stays there. Um, You know, because he makes it clear to his disciples, I could change this if I want. He's got a lot of options. He can escape. He can run away. He can hide. Or he can just summon, you know, all the armed forces of heaven and boom, blow it all away. And he's gone. But he doesn't. He remains obedient. And that becomes the basis then, the the kind of the, the prototype, I'll use that word, or the model for our giving of ourselves and presenting ourselves as living sacrifice so that's what he's called us to do now he's going to give us the the oh wait i forgot he says this is your intelligent service it sounds like the cia or something but you know you'll you'll read in in other english versions this is the one that i quibble with the most It'll say things like, This is your uh, spiritual act of worship, or, you know, they they go on and on, and they they add a bunch of words in there to explain what's, what's being said. Because in the original language, you have three words your intelligent service. We have to fill in other English words to explain it because your intelligent service doesn't mean much to us. This is the language of religious groups in the first century and Hebrew worship. And I, ha- and I have to tell you the Greek words here. The first one you'll recognize, logikos. It's like logical. Which actually, I like, I like that as a translation. I don't know it's the best. But he says, you know, this is your logical response. It's like it makes sense. It's, it's kind of rational. And that word logical is rational, but it's more. That's the reason why you can't use logical. I mean, it, it it makes sense, but it's much more than that. Because whenever something is uh, logicos or it's tied into that, that's a philosophical term. It means the, it has to do with the mind, has to do with the inner person. That's why the translation spiritual is used a lot. But I'm going to quibble, and it's just me. You don't have to accept this. You can fuss with it. You can say I'm you know, out of my mind, and that's okay. I probably am. I don't like that translation of all things spiritual because spiritual to us, I think, means something different than what it used to mean. I think for us, spiritual means intangible, not real stuff, and we tend to just put it on a shelf over here, and we say, well, you know, that's just very spiritual and everything. The practical stuff is what matters. And so we think that if we do worship a certain way and follow certain rules, then we got it right. Meanwhile, what's spiritual over here is just kind of separated out scripture never separates those two like that. Spiritual is not unreal. Spiritual is not intangible. Spiritual is actually more than the reality that you and I live in. And they're always fused together. And here you see it fused together in a very important way. This word tends to mean um, true and genuine. Over in 1 Peter, he talks about uh, you know the the true unadulterated spiritual milk. Okay, uh, he um, what he means there is, and he's not talking about literal milk. It's obviously figurative. It's metaphorical, but at the same time, it's true and genuine. And I think what he's getting at is this is not just real. This is more than real. And this is a definition and a view of heaven that I think we need to reclaim. Um, that heaven and the spiritual is not some kind of misty, faraway uh, spirit land where everything's intangible and it's all Casper the Friendly Ghost. and yeah, you know, that, That's not spiritual, okay? That's pagan stuff. C.S. Lewis, one of his books, uh, The Great Divorce, he, and it's, it's, it's a fairy tale, and he's, you know, he's writing this little analogy, and these people get on a bus and they go to heaven, and the thing is when they get to heaven, heaven looks just like earth in a lot of ways, but they're walking around on the grass, and the grass hurts their feet because the blades of grass in heaven are very, very real. I mean, it's so real, it's, it's more real than you and I, and if you stop and think about it, where God is taking this whole creation is to a place where what we're experiencing here is kind of a hazy picture remember paul talking about it that we see in kind of a smoky clouded distorted mirror but soon we're going to see things as they really are yeah don't don't think that this means that you know we're going to be disembodied wraiths running around in heaven not at all so here i think he means true and genuine that 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 presenting our bodies as as living sacrifices holy sacrifices sacrifices that are pleasing to God, that this is really worship. That's real, super real worship. And that's where the word Latreia comes in. Now that word, by the time Paul writes this, it's a word that the Greeks would have used in ancient times. I'm talking about way back in ancient times, even before Paul. They would have used it to mean something that you do to get a reward, some act of service or something like that. But it it was pretty much exclusively used to mean worship work worship ritual that that's the stuff you have to do and it's the word that's used in romans 9 4 Uh, hebrews uses it a lot in 9 1 and 9 6 to talk about what the priests do i mean there's a lot of labor intensive stuff that goes into that but they would use that word for work rather than just a you know a regular everyday word for work to describe a very special kind of work that went into making the worship happen We've taken that word in English, and uh, what we've turned it into is liturgy. But, you know, we're good free church Protestant type people, even though we don't admit it, and we don't use liturgy. We don't have a liturgy. Because liturgy is your order of worship. That's how you do things. There's a certain way you've got to follow it and do it. We don't have that. Oh, really? Well, then put the sermon before the communion. Oh, my goodness, don't do that. And, um, you know... Because then, what are the money counters and the children's worship people going to do? So, um, but yeah, but that's what he means. He just mean he doesn't mean the order. He says this is the the work that you're doing. So he's using that religious language to say that when you offer yourselves, that's real worship, and that might be a good translation. This is your real, true worship. Is presenting yourself, and then here's what that looks like. And by the way, I'm going into verse 2 because I think that uh, verse 1 without verse 2, well, that's sort of like Oreos without milk, okay? That's, that's, uh, that's peanut butter without jelly. It doesn't work, all right? You've got to have verse 2 in there. But, you know, the guys in CR have done what they did. I, they didn't ask me. Uh, what it means is uh, to, to present yourself. Here's command word number one, don't be conformed. So there's a positive and a negative here, or rather a negative and a positive. It's not this, but it is this. Presenting yourselves as living sacrifices means, A, don't be conformed to this age. Some, sometimes the English version will say this world. Uh, this age is technically more correct, but yeah, it's the same thing. It means this realm, the, the way things are, the world that we live in. Uh, it has all of that idea just wrapped up into that word. Um, actually, if you want to get really technical, the, best transla- uh, the, the exact translation of the word would be this eon. But we use that word differently. He's saying don't be conformed. And that word for conformed there is a, is a, is a, is a, is a very technical word. Don't be shaped or guided or molded. And If you stop and think about it, that 's what the world 's always doing to us. It wants to press us into its mold. Now, this is not very biblical or scientific or Greek, and you know, and so I want you to also know that I can speak kindergarten. that when I think of this stuff, I think about Plato, and you remember Plato had this, this great set of, of things that, that you could uh, put the Play-Doh in and mash it, and it would come out in a certain shape or something like that and um, when I was a kid and we had Play-Doh, you know, we, we, we did that for, like, oh, maybe a few hours, you know, put it through the little Play-Doh mold, and we thought, this is boring. Let's go see what we can, you know, mash it into and make it shaped into. And so we found anything that, you know, like, you know just stuff you weren't even supposed to put it in, you know. And, and, and uh, you know, and it's like, yeah, look at that, you know, there's Play-Doh everywhere, there's Play-Doh everywhere. But that's what the world's always doing to us, It's trying to shove us into a mold, Put us in, you know, you've got to be this, you've got to do that. And one of the reasons that people often come to CR is because they have all these burdensome expectations that are just thrown on them. And they think, well, I've got to please all these people. I've got to make all these people happy. And Paul is saying, no, the person you need to please is God. Don't be conformed or shaped or guided by this world. Instead, be changed. Be changed. Now, the word there is the same word that we, we've got the English equivalent of it, metamorphosis. You've heard of that. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's what butterflies do, metamorphosis, and, uh, or caterpillars, and they become butterflies. I don't know. But they, they, you know, they change. That's that word. So you're not going to be conformed. And I'm not going to tell you that Greek word. It's, it's a mouthful. But you need to be changed. And that's the same word that's used in Matthew 17 where Jesus goes up on the mountain and he's transfigured. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the really fancy uh, word that, that we use. But he's metamorphosed. He's metamorphosized. He's, his glory is coming through the human form. I don't think that's an accident that that's the same word. I think Paul is saying that the glory of God ought to shine through our form. The glory of God. We need to be changed to where we reflect more of God's nature. And by the way, those words that he used for mercy, one of the reasons he uses that word is because it implies that if we've been shown mercy, we need to show mercy to others. Um, So these are the two commands that make it clear what presenting ourselves as living sacrifices looks like and it renews our mind uh and then we here's the 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 tortured verse for your proving what is the will of god the good and acceptable and perfect okay what are we trying to prove and or uh some and this is where you see translations all over the map the word there is uh dokima and it means I don't know if I pronounce that right, but who cares? Uh, to test, to discern, to prove, to examine, to determine. And that still leaves me with, well, pick one. You know, which one is it? Funny enough, Paul's already used the word in Romans 2.18. That there's a way we can, like, prove it, test it, show it. And here's the one I like. It's the same word that's used in Luke 14 where the people are all giving excuses to the master why they can't show up for the banquet. And that one fellow says, well, yeah, I just bought a pair of oxen and I got to go check them out. It's test drive. That's what this is. It's test drive. He's saying, you know, yeah, I got to go test drive this, see if it's really what I want, you know. You haven't quite sealed the deal. You got to check it out. That's what he's saying here is that, that when we are not pressed into the mold of the world and we're changed into uh, more of God's nature, you know, the renewing of our mind, I think Paul's saying, then you're going to see. You're, you're going you're gonna to be sold. You're going to be able to figure out for yourself what the will of God is and that it's good and that it's pleasing, it's acceptable, and that it is perfect, which here means it's, it's excellent, it's mature, it's, you know, it's complete. Um, I think that's where he's taking that, and, and he's brought up the will of God more than once in Romans, which is interesting because in step three, and maybe this is why these two are connected, in step three of the 12 steps, we made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God. That sounds like a living sacrifice to me. That sounds like okay. I'm going to do this and then I'm going to f- see if this is really everything that God says it is. And by the way, sometimes we want to, we want all the facts. Well, first I got to be convinced. I got to have proof. I got to have a guarantee. Maybe you just need to jump in and figure it out. Maybe you need to try it out. Maybe you need to test drive it and see how much better it is. One of the things that we'll do as a human people is we will we will avoid doing so many good things, things that could be better, because we can't do it perfectly on our own. And we keep ourselves from doing stuff that we ought. I've looked back and, you know, in, in the process of taking inventory and, and, uh, and just examining myself, I realize how many good opportunities and things that I could have done I have passed up because I wasn't going to be perfect at it. And I let somebody convince me, you know, well, if you can't do it 100%, then don't do it. Yeah, you're right. And God is constantly telling us, you know, if you'll just lean into this, and give yourself, give your life to me, you'll see that it's good. You'll prove it. You'll test drive it. You'll figure it out. And I wonder how many times we do that as churches. Well, you know, this isn't going to work, and that isn't going to work, and this will go wrong, and that will go wrong. And sometimes we just talk ourselves out of doing God's will. It's a good thing we had this meeting because otherwise we might have done something for God. Yeah, yeah, so let's not fail. We better Put the brakes on. That's right. Don't go anywhere. It's like an old uh, statement that, that I used to keep in my office when I was in campus ministry. And, and I don't know why I don't hear. I don't know. But it stuck with me in my heart. And it's a statement that says, um, a ship is safe in harbor. But that's not what ships are for. They weren't made to stay in harbor. They're meant to go somewhere. They're meant to sail. There's, there's risk involved. Um, Step three calls us out to turn our life and our will over to the care of God. And one of the things that I've learned in Celebrate Recovery, and this is, this is probably one of my big takeaways, is that um, I didn't see this, but it's in the curriculum. I didn't see this for most of my life. Giving our life to God is a one-time thing. You know, you give your life to Jesus in baptism. We died with Him in baptism. Romans six, Paul covers this in Romans. We died with Him in baptism, and we were raised to live a new life. But you know, we always struggle with that reality. That you know, some of us it's been years since our baptism. Okay, some of us were baptized in the last century, and uh, you know, the the previous century. The thing is, though, you know that you're, you're, you're you know, if you're honest, that your path hasn't been perfect since then. And boy, we struggle with that. Here's why. And this distinction has always been right there. Turning our life over is a one-time thing. We give it to God. And that, that, that I mean, we trust in Him. But turning your will over is a momentary thing. It's a daily thing. Because our will and God's will are always at odds with one another well not always but there's always that that battle we can either follow our own will or follow god's will and in romans 12 paul has said look worship is you surrendering your will to god's will sacrifice it and then you and he says and it's not bad it's not you uh you know putting it on hold and saying oh i'm gonna deny myself there were these folks in the Middle Ages that used to go around. They, they, uh, they, would, they would beat themselves with whips and everything. You know, they were trying to get rid of the bubonic plague and all that because they were like, oh, God, look at us, we're suffering. You know, and they thought that God wanted that. They thought that God wanted all these you know, uh, wretched people running around bleeding you know, with sores all over their back and everything. And then God would say, oh, I have pity on them. I'll get rid of the bubonic plague. And, 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 and they really thought that that worked. Well, that's not what God wants. Giving your will to God actually gets you out of the hurt and the pain <laughs> And, he, and you find out it's a lot better. It's like, huh, well, what do you know? God, God knows better than I do. And that's when God says, that's right, because I'm God. This is where Romans 12 works for us and, um, and I think explains this very well. This idea of the will of God, that's not just what God wants and then he leaves. He didn't just lay down a laundry list and say, here, here's what I want. Now, I'm going to check out. I got other business to do. I'm going to come back and see if you followed it exactly. God's will is what he wants in us day by day by day. It's a vision. It's a plan. Just like every parent has a vision for their children. And, 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 and we should have a vision for one another. And, and older Christians should be looking at their peers and younger Christians and saying, I want you to be God's person. And I want God to work in you. And God is that active force in that. But what we've got to surrender is our own determined will to do what I want. And instead, surrender it so that I do what God wants. Okay, that's enough. Um, we, uh, we'll pick up on step four next week. Yes, next week. And right now, we're going to sing this song, If You Need to Take Communion. That's going to be served in room 100. Rod, let's, uh, let's all stand. We'll sing this song, and then we'll be sent out in prayer.